zooming in on other worlds. You're listening to Are We There Yet? The radio show exploring space exploration. Hi, I'm Brendan Byrne. The James Webb Space Telescope is giving us stunning views of faraway galaxies, dying stars, and cosmic nurseries. JWST also has the ability to peer at faraway planets and see what their atmospheres are made of, one step closer to answering one of astronomy's biggest questions. And one of the key questions we have, I think it's one of the most fundamental questions we can possibly ask is, are we alone? Just ahead, how Webb is helping us spot our planetary neighbors. Then, for two decades, Matt Kaplan hosted Planetary Radio from the Planetary Society. This year, he's retiring. I have been saying to people for years and years, my two favorite things in life outside of family are space and radio. We check in with Matt before he hangs up his headphones. That's ahead on Are We There Yet? here on WMFE, America's Space Station. Images from the James Webb Space Telescope are dazzling scientists and the general public alike. Some of the most stunning images are of far-off galaxies and star nurseries. The $10 billion telescope launched in December and is beaming back some of the oldest images of early galaxies in the cosmos, giving us a glimpse at the creation of the universe. The telescope can also zoom in on planets outside our solar system, known as exoplanets, which will help answer one of science's biggest questions. Are we alone? Here to talk more about JWST's ability to examine far-off planets is Paul Byrne. He's a planetary scientist at Washington University in St. Louis. Paul, welcome back to the show. My pleasure. Always happy to talk with you. So the the, the images of, of distant galaxy or distant galaxies and, and nebula are very cool and all, but uh, I think the thing that stood out to me the most in these first JWST images were was the spectroscopy of an exoplanet um, with with Watts ninety six B. Tell tell us what was your reaction to to seeing those results for the first time. Right, okay, so we knew they were coming, right? We knew that the, one of the points of the Webb telescope is to basically go and tell us the compositions of the atmospheres of planets orbiting other stars, in many cases, extremely far away. But it's one thing to know, and it's another to see. And it was just amazing to kind of realize what we're looking at, right? Because these things, they come across as squiggles. That's what these things look like, right? They're different you know, atoms and different elements at the different weights. Um, but when you actually step back and think about what you're seeing, this little squiggly plot is telling you what the climate of an exoplanet is, right? I mean, for example, in the case of, of this WASP-96b, right, this thing is, it's more than a thousand light years from Earth. Uh, and now we know that it has water-rich clouds, it probably rains. It's cloudy. It'll be like Oregon or Ireland. And to, to know that, you know, and that, of course, the, the you know, the, the JWST is superlative, but it's not just that it's starting to get these kinds of data to us, but it's that it can take these data relatively fast, much, much faster than, say, Hubble could, which means for a given amount of time, we can get loads more data. So it's not just we're getting this kind of information, but we're going to get so much more of it in the coming years that uh, it's going to take us a while to get used to, I think. It is, it is pretty incredible how this stuff is coming back so quickly and such a, a wide variety of observations, right? I mean, is this, is this changing the way that, you know, scientists like yourself are, are, are thinking about 
studying the universe? Absolutely. So, you know, there's, there's different kinds of things that the Webb telescope will do, right? So there's astronomy, uh, where we're, we're looking to see what stars are doing. There's cosmology, understanding the history and formation of the universe itself. And then there's this exoplanetary science angle where we're going to be able to tell uh, what the atmosphere compositions are of these worlds that are so far away that you know, we can't photograph exoplanets. We've, we've directly imaged a handful of them. That's usually very difficult to do, and there's only a few scenarios where we're able to do it. And when we do, exoplanets look like bright sources of light. They look like mini stars. So it's not like we are anytime soon going to be photographing the surfaces of these worlds, particularly the smaller rocky ones, and looking at the continents, right? But what we can do is that we can infer a huge amount of information about these things on the basis of what their atmosphere is made of. Now, the, the planet that was released a couple of weeks ago when the web data first came out, WASP-96b, it's called that because of how it was discovered, um, that spectroscopic data that tells us what the composition of, in this case, for example, that there are water clouds in the atmosphere of this giant planet. This is a giant planet, right? It's about half the size of, of uh, Jupiter. This is not a rocky planet, but Webb is going to have the capability of making these kinds of measurements around rocky planets. And one of the key questions we have, I think it's one of the most fundamental questions we can possibly ask is, are we alone? Now, Webb is not necessarily going to answer that question. But a really important question that sort of feeds into this larger search is uh, how common are Earth-like worlds? So you might know, for example, and I, I've talked with you before, I, I like to think that I'm a Venus evangelical. I'm a big fan of Venus. The whole pile of reasons we should be exploring, and I'm delighted that we're going to be exploring it. But Venus is an Earth-sized world. It's about the same size as Earth, but it's very, very different to Earth. And you may have heard people say before, we've identified Earth-like worlds. We have, we have found no Earth-like worlds. We have found several Earth-sized worlds. And in fact, Webb is going to help us find more, as well other telescopes that are in, in the pipeline. But trying to determine an Earth-like world, i.e. a place that has like pretty decent habitable conditions, that's one of the big questions we have. It's one of the big goals that Webb will help us answer. And so what we're going to find is how common is it for us to find a world about the same size as Earth that has an atmosphere that might be comparable in composition? That's a big unknown. And Webb is going to help us answer that question. So we're still probably decades, possibly centuries, from photographing the features on the surfaces of exoplanets because they're so far away. But we are only a couple of years away, I think, from having a good idea of what the answer to the question is. How many Earth-like worlds are there? That's huge. Paul, for people like me, I want to see the images, but you can tell so much more from this spectroscopy, right? I mean, a, a direct image of, of an exoplanet would, would be really cool, but, but you're actually learning far more from, from these kinds of observations, right? Hugely, right? Because like we can look at the atmosphere and we can work out where the object is, you know, the planet is with respect to its star. We can make an estimate for what kind of how much sunlight it gets and you know we know what kind of star it is. You know, we can we can kind of from relatively little information back out a lot. And so when we start to see what's actually making up the atmosphere of that of that world and we have an idea as to how big it is, and we, we we have a reasonable understanding of whether it's rocky or it's gas, and we know roughly how far away from its own star that it is, we can start to put all those pieces together and make it a, a fairly good idea as to what we're looking at. So for example, if you were to point to uh, the Webb telescope or something like it at Earth from a thousand light years away, you would see a nitrogen atmosphere with a good bit of oxygen. And you might have a few ideas of how that gets made. If you point to the same telescope at Venus, which is just right next door and functionally the same size as Earth, you'd see almost all CO2, carbon dioxide. So by pointing this telescope at worlds far away from us, 
we are going to look and, and, and try to ask pretty basic questions. Is How much water in the atmosphere is there? How much oxygen is there in the atmosphere? How much nitrogen or how much CO2 or something else? And then by figuring that out and then comparing that with the size of the world and what we think it's likely made of and how far from its own star it is, very quickly we can build up a pretty comprehensive model of basically what that world is and even how it came to be and what that means for its climate and even its geology, things we cannot yet directly measure. So you're right. You know, it, it looks like a bunch of data, right? It's, you know, you 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 plot in the case of, say, WASP, WASP-96b, we plot the amount of light versus the wavelength of light, which is basically how these these spectral measurements are made. And from that, those data points, you know, we can put a we can put a model in there. And then once you have the model, we can start figuring out, well, what is this actually telling us? And that's extremely powerful to be able to do, because like you say, you know, right now, the actual images are just points of light. Right? We are a long way off seeing physical features on the surface of these worlds, even if we can infer that they're present. But by looking at the atmosphere, we can learn an awful lot about these worlds very quickly. You're listening to Are We There Yet? from WMFE. I'm Brendan Byrne. We're speaking with Paul Byrne, a planetary scientist at Washington University in St. Louis, about how the James Webb Space Telescope is helping us better understand exoplanets, planets outside our solar system. Paul, we, we've talked about this before, but this, this field of exoplanet discovery and understanding is is growing at, at an incredibly rapid pace. I mean, when, when a few were discovered and then now we're up to, you know, 10,000 or tens of thousands of candidates in, in just a few decades. Um, and that's with just space-based telescopes like Tess and Kepler doing a lot of the, the searching. What is what is JWST going to do to kind of accelerate our understanding of, of exoplanets? I mean, are, are we in a golden age uh, of this kind of field of, of astronomy at this point? Oh, we're just starting. So so there are more telescopes uh, coming down the pipeline to help us find ever more of these worlds. I'm sure Webb is going to play its fair share in finding them. But what Webb can do more than anything else we have at our disposal so far is it's going to be able to do follow-up es- uh, observations to help characterize what these worlds are like in a way that we couldn't do it with Spitzer or Tess or, or Kepler or these missions that we plan to find in the next few years. So I don't know if Webb is going to dramatically add to the number of exoplanets that are discovered. I'm sure it will, but that's not its principal function because we are going to be able to do that otherwise with existing telescopes and and these new ones. But what Webb is going to be able to do and that we really cannot do otherwise is work out how many of them are rocky worlds that may be like Earth or like Venus or how many giant planets there are that have atmospheres comparable to, say, Jupiter or Saturn or Uranus and Neptune. It's those follow-up measurements they're going to be extremely valuable, particularly if, let's say, we, with these other telescopes, find you know, a particular candidate world that we think is about perhaps Earth's size, maybe a little smaller, maybe a little bit bigger. It's in the so-called habitable zone of its parent star. Now, that phrase is sort of problematic, habitable zone. It means different things to different people. But basically, that, that region around the star where the, the, the amount of starlight or sunlight that planet's getting is allowing liquid water to be stable on the surface, assuming the, the, that this planet is like Earth. Uh, if we see a world in that so-called habitable zone, then we can't do very much more with that information with these existing telescopes. What we can do now that Webb is commissioned is we then say, okay, let's take some time on the Webb telescope. Let's point it at this world. Let's see if we can measure what's in the atmosphere. Let's look for things like carbon, nitrogen, oxygen, hydrogen, you name it. Let's look for evidence of clement conditions, habitable conditions. Is liquid water stable on the surface? Let's maybe even look for evidence of industry. Now, we are a long way off, I think, being able to detect something in the atmosphere of an exoplanet that we could definitively point to technology because it, it's there's lots of ways you can get different chemical signatures. 
But it's the kind of thing we're thinking about. It's the kind of thing that maybe in the next 20 or 30 years, we may make definitive progress in looking for evidence of these so-called technosignatures that may be present chemically in the atmospheres of exoplanets. So this is the kind of, you know, to say we're in a golden age, I think we're just beginning the platinum age of, of exoplanetary science because it is going to be dramatic what Webb is going to tell us, how quickly and how comprehensively it's going to tell us things. That's just so fascinating to think about that we'll be looking for these techno signatures. That's that's wild. I mean it's crazy, right? And and and, and to your point, I mean, you know, you said this a minute ago, like, you know, I grew up, no surprise, watching Star Trek and science, you know, all the science fiction I could get. I, you know, and every week the Enterprise comes to a new star system and this it's full of planets. But like you said, until basically 1990s, we did not have any scientific evidence that there were other planets. I mean, people for decades have hypothesized it, and it seemed very difficult to imagine why there wouldn't be other planets. We didn't know for sure. And now what we know after maybe three short decades, and even then, most of the discoveries we've made in the last 10 or 12 years, we now know that on average, if you average it out, there's probably about one planet per star. That Some stars have more, some have none, but it probably works out on average about one. There's 400 billion stars in the, this galaxy alone, which means it stands to reason there's about 400 billion planets. There's probably more, right? Because, of course, we, our ability to detect these, even the biggest ones, is, is heavily biased towards particular kinds. So there's, there's lots of potential planets out there we're missing. There could be certainly an excess of perhaps a trillion planets in this galaxy alone. So it's kind of hard to imagine there must, there, there must be a few like Earth in our vicinity that we could, we could find. And you know, in the next 10 years, I think we're going to have an answer to the question, how many Earth-like worlds are there nearby? I don't mean Earth-size, I mean Earth-like. And, you know, maybe the answer is none. That's a pretty big finding. Why is Earth unique? Maybe the answer is loads. That's a pretty big finding. Maybe Earth isn't unique. Either way, we're going to find some really important answers. So, yeah, strap in, folks, because it's coming. We've been speaking with Paul Byrne. He's an associate professor of Earth and Planetary Sciences at Washington University in St. Louis. Paul, thank you again for joining us. My pleasure, Brennan. Thanks very much. Still to come, Planetary Radio's Matt Kaplan joins us to reflect on his two decades hosting the show. I first brought this up like a year and a half ago, and I said, you know, 20 years, pretty much doing the same thing. It's, I think it's time for somebody else to bring some new thinking into the show. He retires later this year. Are We There Yet is back in a minute. You're listening to Are We There Yet? here on WMFE America's Space Station. I'm Brendan Byrne. For the past 20 years, Matt Kaplan hosted Planetary Radio, a weekly radio show from the Planetary Society. Last month, Matt announced his plans to retire. And while the show searches for its next host, I thought we'd have a chat with Matt about his two decades in the host seat before he hangs up his headphones. Matt Kaplan, thanks so much for joining us. It is such a pleasure to be here, Brendan, and, and an honor to be uh, with you on this other really excellent uh, space exploration show on the opposite coast. Yes. Well, that's high praise coming from you, Matt, so, so I appreciate it. And, and as my FM dial uh, neighbor who's on Wednesday nights on WMFE, it's, it's good to be in the same room with you virtually, albeit. <laughs> 
<laughs> we are so we are also honored to be in that WMFE lineup with you. I mean, we are we are really thrilled to be there uh, in Orlando. Our, and our listeners love the show. Um, you know, even before I got there, we had Planetary Radio. Um, I, I always hear good things about it. So our listeners were a little disappointed to hear that you were hanging up the headphones and stepping away from the microphone. Uh, but before we dwell on, on you leaving, let's talk about the show and let's talk about what you've learned over these two decades. Take us back to that first show, Matt. Uh, where did the idea for Planetary Radio come from and, and what did you discuss in that first show? I have been saying to people for years and years, my two favorite things in life outside of family are space and radio. Uh, I'm a product of college radio. I've always had my hand in it, even when I was making my living doing other things in higher education. Uh, I had been at the Planetary Society for a couple of years as a part-timer, doing various media things, when uh, Lou Friedman, our co-founder and then executive director of the Society, allowed me to realize this dream. And we started Planetary Radio. Anybody who started listening to the show you know, like last week, would recognize that first show other than the change in theme. Uh, Lou was my first guest, which seemed appropriate. Uh, but we had What's Up, which uh, Bruce Betts has joined me on every single episode of the show since then for going on 20 years. Uh, and it was just seriously the beginning of a dream, even though at that point we were on one 10-watt radio station, which was my old <laughs> college station, KUCI. Uh, but uh, but uh, we've grown a little since then. Mm-hmm. You have grown, and you've covered so much in these two decades, Matt. Um, I'm wondering if, if anything stands out as, as one of your maybe favorite interviews or favorite segments or, or, or even kind of a topic that you've covered uh, over these two decades of, of hosting and producing Planetary Radio. You probably know that is one of the toughest questions to ask mm-hmm. anybody. Who, <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> you know, like you, I love what I do. It's hard to pick favorites, but... Um, this is, if I had to, I would probably point to either the Planetary Radio live shows that we have done, which have been such a, a tremendous pleasure to do, uh, all over the world, in fact, but uh, also when we've been able to get out of the studio, go on location, you know, mm-hmm. drop into your backyard there at KSC, uh, or go down to Chile to visit the, the Alma Radio Telescope Array. Um, but gosh, the individuals, I mean, every person who's been on the show is a hero of mine. And, and I feel so fortunate to get to talk to these people about this thing that I've loved since I was a little kid, you know, heads of missions, Apollo astronauts, uh, NASA administrators, uh, science fiction writers. I mean, Arthur C. Clarke and Ray Bradbury, the two of the people who introduced me, uh, generated, helped generate my love of this field. Um, it's as you know, it's tough to pick favorites. You mentioned all of these people that you had the opportunity to talk to, and, and I want to ask you, you mentioned this love of radio. Why is radio such a great platform to host these conversations with these, these visionaries and, and um, you know, these really, really smart people that are doing really interesting things to kind of find our place in, in the universe? Why is radio the perfect platform for this? I think you feel about it the same way that I do. I mean, I've always been so impressed by how intimate uh, a, mm-hmm. medium, a medium radio is and continues to be. And, you know, I include in that podcasting because we come right into people's homes. We drive with them during their commutes. Uh, we're in their ears as they're jogging. You know, please leave the ambient sound on, folks, if you're doing that. Uh, <laughs> but it, it, it has always been that way, and it is so easy 
maybe I should say it's so much easier than a lot of other media like television to be able to have a truly personal dare I say, intimate conversation with someone uh, because you really are just, it's just the two of you and a microphone. And uh, uh, it, 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 because we also have the time to go in depth with people, at least now and then, um, it's so much more than just, you know, the 15-second soundbite that they may be getting from someone uh, when, uh, let's say, Artemis 1 launches. Uh, and, you know, maybe that's all it will get from CNN, although I hope they'll do more than that. Um, it, it, it's, um, that is really the best part of this, getting to have these extended conversations with these people who truly are my heroes. Mm-hmm. And, and there's something so kind of human in space exploration right there's there's these incredible people behind this that are really pouring their their heart and soul and their and their their life's work into these these missions it's it's incredible to hear from them. i'm wondering if if you feel the same way that i do when i get to talk to these people absolutely uh you know lori leshen who's the new director of jpl a great planetary scientist and the first woman to head jpl as we speak she's my guest on the current planetary radio episode and she talked about you know people who make that accusation that, oh, science is so lacking in passion, they approach everything as if it's just a string of zeros and ones. And, you know, she said, of, uh, what could be further from the truth? These people feel such passion for what they are doing, uh, and it is such a pleasure to help them share that passion uh, with, with our audiences. You're listening to Are We There Yet? from WMFE. I'm Brendan Byrne. We're speaking with Matt Kaplan, host and producer of Planetary Radio. After 20 years on the show, Matt is retiring later this year. Right now, we are, I would say, public interest in space is at very high. I mean, with with images from from the James Webb Space Telescope, we have the return to human launches uh, with commercial crew. and, And as you alluded to, we've got Artemis 1 coming up. Um, but it hasn't always been that way. And, and over those 20 years that you've been hosting the show, I would assume that there has been some ebbing and flowing of, of public interest in space. Can, can you talk a little bit about that and, and how, what kind of impact does that have on the field as a whole when, when, when people aren't behind what's happening? You're talking about really why the Planetary Society came into existence back in 1980, because it was in one of those ebb periods. Uh, and and our founders decided that public support, because they were convinced the public supports this, uh, would be able to uh, regenerate interest. Yeah, we've seen, uh, I would have to say, minor dips since then. Uh, and and it has been a pleasure and an, uh, and an honor, I keep saying that, but it is, uh, to be part of uh, making sure that space exploration uh, retains the importance that, you know, you and I and our audiences feel that it should have within the national and international agenda. And, you know, that's been a big part of what we've done. I mean, rather than seeing depressed periods for the entire space exploration uh, endeavor, I would probably point to where we saw specific instances like um, something that's happening right now where NASA uh, uh, eliminated funding or or, or reduced it greatly for the NEO Surveyor Project, which is a major, major initiative and uh, uh, priority for the Planetary Society to be a part of 
letting people know why that project is so important and helping to regenerate interest in it. I mean, we've had some success with this over the years. I mean, I would point to New Horizons, which uh, uh, looked many times like it might not happen. And even the James Webb Space Telescope, which, as you know, came that close to uh, being eliminated. And now we're seeing uh, its glorious success. So um, maybe not the huge challenges that were seen in those early in the early 80s, but we've certainly had some great successes and, and things to be proud of. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's talk a little bit about some stories that you wish you would have covered that you didn't have a chance to. Is there is there something that you, that you wish that you would have had on your show or a place that you ha- would have liked to have gone uh, to to do planetary radio? Yeah, I uh, as I mentioned to you once, I uh, tried to see a shuttle launch, went out there with a buddy, and had a great time and kept extending the trip. But after three scrubs, when they found a hydrogen link, well, I couldn't stick around for two weeks while they figured out what was going on there. So I never got to see a shuttle launch. But on that trip, I did kind of sneak into the CBS uh, trailer out there, the headquarters, mm-hmm. and sat in what I, at least I want to believe, was Walter Cronkite's chair. So that, <laughs> that kind of makes up for it. Um, and, and another one, you know, it's a person. I would love to have spoken to Neil Armstrong, uh, but, you know, as you know, he was famously averse to uh, talking to media, uh, and I respect him for that. Uh, you know, certainly not a hermit. He he still enjoyed the company of people, or so I'm told, but I am sorry that I, I never had that opportunity. Mm-hmm. Well, you might have the opportunity to see SLS launch, right, Matt? We're, we're going to see you at Kennedy Space Center for this one. I sure hope so, along with some of my colleagues, and I look forward to seeing you there, Brendan. Yes, sounds good. And we always say in Florida, book a trip to Florida. You might see a, a rocket launch when you're here. That's how you have to do it. So. And finally, Matt, uh, what's ahead for you? Can you share uh, what your plans are? Life after planetary radio? Is there a life after planetary radio? <laughs> Boy, I hope so, because uh, I want to stick around. Uh, but but professionally, yes, I hope so as well. In fact, my, my colleagues at the Society have been terrific. I first brought this up like a year and a half ago, and I said, you know, 20 years, pretty much doing the same thing. It's I think it's time for somebody else to bring some new thinking into the show. I hope to continue to contribute to Planetary Radio on at least an irregular basis. And they have told me about several other things that they'd like me to be able to uh, to be a part of at the Society. And uh, I'm, I'm very, very happy about that because uh, I'm not done with this. I, I plan to be as much a part of things as I can continue to be. And, and hopefully people will still hear my voice every now and then on, on WMFE uh, next to yours. Matt, I think I speak on on behalf of our listeners. We we are very much going to miss hearing your voice every week, but we are very excited for your next chapter and Planetary Radio's next chapter. So uh, Matt Kaplan is the host and producer of Planetary Radio for the past two decades. Matt, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Brendan. It, It truly is. I'll use it one more time. An honor. Keep doing the great work. Well, that's going to do it for this week's show. Be sure to subscribe to the show's podcast feed. Get it on NPR One, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Or visit WMFE.org slash Are We There Yet? Are We There Yet? is a production of WMFE, America's Space Station. Editorial guidance this week from LaToya Dennis. Our intern is Caroline Brockler. And it's her last week. Thanks for all your help this semester, Caroline. Ad Astra. Support for Are We There Yet? comes from our listeners. Until next week, I'm Brendan Byrne. Thanks for listening.